So when we sin against God, God wants us to remember, just like he wanted Moses and the children of Israel to remember, that he is still holy, that he is still great, but he reminds us that he is also good. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Is there a possibility that your view of God is misinformed and wrong? How can you know for sure? Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Today, we continue in Tom's series titled God's Sermon on His Name. We find out how, in the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, the serpent tempted Eve to believe that God was intentionally withholding something good from her. Unfortunately, the strategy worked. Both Adam and Eve sinned. Well, the fact is, attacking the goodness of God is still one of Satan's most effective tactics. Yes, even today. But take comfort, believer, as Tom will unpack in today's message. God's self-revelation in the book of Exodus destroys all inadequate and idolatrous views of God and replaces them with a glimpse of the true and living God with an emphasis on His holiness, greatness, and goodness. Let's join Tom now as he opens God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Since the Garden of Eden... The greatest temptation that we as mankind have faced has been to question the goodness of God. That was at the heart of Satan's temptation of Eve. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, he said to her, after he said, has God really said this and you're not going to surely die, he said, here's why God has told you not to eat of that tree. It's because in the day that you eat of it, God knows that you'll be like Him. In other words, God is intentionally holding back from you something that is good. That is in its heart an attack on the goodness of God. And that is still one of Satan's most effective weapons. Sadly, there are many Christians who live their lives with this distorted view of the person of God. But God's self-revelation in Exodus 34 destroys all of our inadequate and idolatrous views of God and replaces them with a glimpse of the true and living God, of His holiness, of His greatness, and of His amazing goodness. This remarkable self-revelation that we're setting together comes in the aftermath of the golden calf incident. Just to remind you of the setting, it begins with an ominous backdrop, the sin of God's people. And we, we looked at that in chapter 32, verse 1, and through chapter 33, verse 11. The people sin by their idolatry, by their immorality, sin upon sin, and as Moses seeks God's forgiveness for his people, he makes in that context three audacious requests. In chapter 33, verses 12 to 23, we studied the prayer of the mediator. The three requests Moses made were these. One, he asked God for the promise of his presence, go with us. 
He asked God for the knowledge of his character. Let me know your ways. And he asked God for a visible display of God's glory. Show me your glory. God agreed that he would respond to Moses' request, that he would would fulfill these three requests Moses made. But in verse 19, he made it clear that the only grounds on which he would do so was not the merit of Moses, but rather his sovereign grace. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. That brings us to chapter 34, and we are considering God's gracious revelation, the explanation of God's name. This passage is what Martin Luther called God's sermon on God's name. In Exodus 19, you remember that the people of Israel at Sinai had made a covenant with God. In that covenant, they had sworn allegiance to God, and they had committed themselves to obedience to His laws. Two short months later, two months, the golden calf incident occurred, and they disobeyed God's commands, several of the Ten Commandments. They had heard God speak. They broke His covenant with them. In fact, they shattered it, pictured by Moses shattering those tablets with the law written on them. This was the first time since they had made those promises just two short months before that they had sinned against God in such a serious way. How would God respond? How would God react? What is God like toward His people who sin against Him? Well, Exodus 34 records God's renewal of His covenant with His people. And as God restores His people Israel to Himself, We learn what we as God's people need to know about our God when we sin against Him. This self-revelation demonstrates how the covenant-keeping God responds to His people when they sin against Him, when they break their promises, when they break the covenant that they have made with Him. You and I as New Testament believers are part of what the New Testament calls the new covenant. It's called that in the Old Testament as well. It's the new covenant that we've entered into, and you and I, just like them, often break our promises of allegiance. We disobey the laws of our good and gracious King. How does God respond? Well, in Exodus 34, verses 1 to 7, God teaches us several essential verities or truths about Himself. Now, the last time we studied this text together, we learned the first couple of those verities. Let me just remind you of them. First of all, we learned that God is holy. The first four verses of chapter 34 remind us that when we as God's people sin against Him, God doesn't forget His law. God doesn't compromise His character. Instead, what does He urge Moses to do? Before you come to the mountain again for me to renew the covenant, I want you to cut out two more stone tablets, and I'm going to write my law on them again. So when we sin against God, we must not take our sin lightly. He doesn't, and He does not compromise His character or His holiness to deal with our sin. Secondly, we learn that God is great. In verses 5 and the first part of verse 6, God reveals something of His greatness. He condescends. He comes down to be with Moses, and 
in picturing that, pictures his condescension to humanity, period. But he also reveals his greatness in his names. He says, I am Yahweh. I am the one who simply is. I depend on nothing and no one for my existence, but rather all things depend on me. And I am not only Yahweh, the one who is, I am Ael, I am God, I am the mighty one, almighty. So, in response to the sin of the people, God reveals himself to be still holy and still great. None of that has changed. But today, we come to the heart of God's self-revelation and to what is the truth about God that is the greatest comfort to us when we sin against Him. Let's read the text together, Exodus chapter 34, and let me just read, I'll take a running start with verse 5, and then we'll look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he, probably the Lord, called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And notice Moses' response, verses 8 and 9, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth in worship and then to pray in verse 9, to pray on the basis of what he's learned about God. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst. And even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. So when we sin against God, God wants us to remember, just like He wanted Moses and the children of Israel to remember, that He is still holy, that He is still great. But He reminds us thirdly that He is also good. He is good. That's the message beginning in the middle of verse 6 and running through the first half of verse 7. He is good. I remember several years ago, I was struck with how important the goodness of God is to God Himself. Have you ever thought about that? Look back at chapter 33, verses 18 and 19. Moses said, I pray you, God, show me what? Your glory. To which God responds in verse 19, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. You see what God says? You want to see my glory? My glory is my goodness. He gave him a visible display of his goodness, and he gives him here a proclamation of, a declaration of his goodness. In this extraordinary text, God explains his goodness to us. And he does so by recounting his attributes, who he is, that's verse 6, and his actions, what he does, that's verse 7. So let's look, first of all, and consider the fact that God is good in his attributes, that is, in who he is. 
When God wants to explain his goodness to us, he starts with his attributes, what I'm like. He says, let me, let me tell you what I'm like. And he begins to unfold the goodness of his attributes by telling us, notice verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate. God says, I am compassionate. It's a great word. The Hebrew word is a warm, emotional word that actually comes from the Hebrew word for womb. It describes a deep love for the helpless that's rooted in a natural bond, exactly like that that a mother feels for the child who came out of her womb. That's the, the emphasis of this word. That's the, the atmosphere of this word. In fact, it's expressed just that way in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15. Listen to God. I love this. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Now, just stop and think about that a moment. Is it normal for a woman to forget the child that came out of her womb, her nursing infant? Of course not. God says, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no, here's our word, compassion on the son of her womb? And then God says, it's not likely, but even if these forget, I will not forget you. God says, my compassion is more relentless than what a nursing mom feels for her child. This word pictures someone who is strong, but who sees someone else who is weak and vulnerable and voluntarily enters into that person's struggle and comes to their aid. You see, God sees us, believers, and He sees us as weak and vulnerable, and His great heart is moved with our situation. He shares our struggles, and His powerful arm acts on our behalf. You remember Psalm 103, I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago, is really David's commentary on this self-revelation of God. He quotes it, and then he explains it. Listen to how God explains or how David, rather, explains God's compassion in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. Just as a father, an earthly father, has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him, for He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Christian, do you understand and believe that God genuinely cares about you, that He has compassion toward you like that, that a, a mother feels toward the child who came out of her womb? What God wanted Moses and wants us to understand is that that doesn't change because of our sin. Remember the context here. The people of Israel have sinned against God, sinned against His covenant, sinned against His law, and God says to them, I am unchanged, I am still compassionate. Psalm 78, verses 37 to 39 make this clear. It's talking about Israel, and the psalmist writes, their heart was not steadfast toward God, nor were they faithful in His covenant, but He being compassionate, 
forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them, and often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. Listen, Christian, God never excuses your sin. God never takes your sin lightly, but God does understand what you are experiencing, and He does have compassion on you. And of course, our Lord is able to do so in a special way, having experienced what it's like to be fully human. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews says, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. When you sin, don't ever forget that while God doesn't excuse your sin, while God doesn't take your sin lightly, he's still holy, he's still great, he has compassion. There's a second attribute of his goodness that's here in this passage, and it's that He's gracious. Verse 6 goes on to say, I am compassionate and gracious. Now, the noun form of this, grace, occurs more often in the Old Testament, but this adjective form, translated here gracious, occurs some 14 times in the Old Testament. Eleven times it's combined with the word compassionate. They come together like a package. What does it mean that God is gracious? Well, it means that he by nature is full of this quality. He is full of grace. So let me ask you this, what is grace? You ask the average Christian what is grace, and he's going to give you, he or she will give you an answer something like this. Grace is God's unmerited favor. That's the most common response. Grace is God's unmerited favor, and, and that's okay as far as it goes. The problem is it doesn't go far enough because grace is that quality in God which causes him to find joy and delight in doing good to those who deserve nothing but evil. You see, when God says he's gracious, he means that, that he is completely full of this inherent quality that finds joy in doing good to those and treating with favor those who don't deserve it, but who not only don't deserve it, but who deserve exactly the opposite. I like the way G.S. Bishop puts it. He says, grace is a provision for men who are so fallen that they cannot lift the acts of justice, so corrupt that they cannot change their own natures, so averse to God that they cannot turn to Him, so blind that they cannot see Him, so deaf that they cannot hear Him, and so dead that He Himself must open their graves and lift them in resurrection. That's grace. It's like what our governor does when he pardons a, a death row inmate. If he steps in and intervenes and pardons a death row inmate, that's grace, because not only does that condemned criminal not deserve or merit that pardon, but in fact, he or she deserves exactly the opposite, deserves to be justly punished for his or her crimes. What 
God is saying about himself here, don't miss this, is that it is his inherent nature to do for his people what we don't deserve. Aren't you glad? I mean, think about how grace permeates everything in our lives, this quality of God. I mean, sending his son into the world to accomplish our salvation was the greatest expression of God's grace. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. What's he talking about? He's talking about the appearance of Jesus Christ. He says, grace is a person. Grace has appeared. The whole process of salvation from beginning to end is solely of God's grace. Do you understand that? God chose you in eternity past. You know why? Because you were such a wonderful person. No, it was his grace. It was that in God which, which finds delight in doing good to you when you deserved exactly the opposite. In time, he, he saved you. He brought you under the gospel. You heard the gospel. He called you to himself through that gospel. He declared you right with him. He adopted you as his child. He gave you new spiritual life. All of that was grace. Ephesians 1.7 says, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And of course, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You understand your salvation is entirely from this quality in God. But if you are growing at all, if you are a believer, you are growing, and if you are growing at all in likeness to Jesus Christ, that's not because you're working so hard at it, although you ought to work hard at it. We're, com we're commanded to do so. But the reason that's happening is grace. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect you. It's the God of grace. We all serve. We serve the Lord in this church. We serve each other. Where does that come from? Well, even our spiritual service is grace. What you do to serve others in this body is grace. Romans chapter 12, verse 6, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Paul talked about his own service in 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Paul says, I worked hard in ministry. And then he adds, but the, not I, it was the grace of God with me. Paul says, don't look at me and say, wow, look at Paul, look at his ministry. Look at what a wonderful guy he was. Look at how great his ministry. No, he says, it was all grace. It's all grace. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, God's Sermon on His Name. Tom will have part six for you next time. Do join us then. Well, Tom, it's vital that all believers remain mindful of the gracious, forgiving character of God. Isn't that true? It truly is. You know, friend, let me just say, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you need 
to grasp this reality about God. Remind yourself that when you sin, and you will sin, you'll hate it, you'll want to turn from it if you're a true believer, but you will sin. And when you do, remind yourself that there is real hope of forgiveness because of the nature of God. He is a gracious God. That's why after King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah, he came back to this very passage and he began Psalm 51 by saying, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. We come to God knowing that he is eager to display the forgiveness and grace to us that he has always shown to his repentant people. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. 